Hey everyone, you might notice that this is not your usual host for this podcast. My name is Daniel Bashir. I am a new editor over here at The Gradient. I've been working with Andre over at Skynet Today for a bit over two years now and just joined up recently. Today, I'll be interviewing Evan Hobinger. Evan is a research fellow at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. He's also a former lab mate of mine from Harvey Mudd College, and Evan was an author on risks from learned optimization and advanced machine learning systems. This was a paper that introduced the inner alignment problem to the AI alignment community. So today I'll be talking to him a little bit about his research in inner alignment and a couple of related areas. I do hope you find the conversation interesting and that you'll forgive me for a few vocal flubs. This is my first time interviewing someone for a podcast. Enjoy the episode. All right, Evan, so you're currently an alignment researcher at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Before we get into your work on inner alignment, I do want to spend just a little bit of time talking about how you actually got here. So I know you spent a lot of time doing software engineering. I'd love if you could tell me in the audience a little bit about your path towards AI alignment, what sort of turned you on to the issues you're working on. I know you were involved in effective altruism quite a bit before that. So just for our audience, if you could tell us a little bit about what you were doing there, what the EA movement is all about, and how that kind of drove you towards AI alignment. Absolutely. Yeah. So you sort of preempted me in that I did get into effective uh, into AI safety through effective altruism. So I, um, I guess, you know, in like high school, I started reading like the sequences and I was sort of familiar with like the rationalist space and like, you know, some of these sorts of old works like super intelligence and stuff. And so I, I knew that it existed and I knew this stuff was happening, but I wasn't really sort of involved in it or thinking it would ever be something I would go into. Um, in college, I sort of, I started to get into effective altruism. So, uh, a friend of mine started the EA club at Harvey Mudd, where we both went. Uh, and, um, she sort of never was really able to get it, get it going. Um, but I sort of decided I would take over and I ran it my, the sort of club there, my junior and senior year. Um, and then I also, so while I was running the, the EA club at Mudd, I went to an EA Global, which is this uh, conference for just like, you know, lots of people who are interested in effective altruism. And I met some uh, Miri people there. And I had previously done a lot of work in functional programming. So I wrote this functional programming language called Coconut that's kind of popular. Uh, and so I, ha I had a lot of functional programming experience. And Miri at the time was doing a lot of just like functional programming software engineering stuff. And so they, sort of invited me to do an internship there. And so I did an internship at Miri, just doing software engineering, uh, the sort of functional programming stuff. Uh, and while I was there, I was sort of invited to do this uh, thing called the Miri Summer Fellows Program, which is a sort of mm -hmm. couple weeks long summer research retreat. And I, you know, at the time was not really, you know, didn't really believe that I would be able to do AI safety research. I, you know, I knew I was a software engineer and I knew I could do software engineering. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, I'll give it a try. I'll see if I can do research. And uh, while I was there, I met a couple of other people. And we sort of, I, I sort of got a group together to work on this sort of specific topic, which is really trying to, at the time, 
you know, there's a lot of discussion about this sort of very general understanding of what if we train machine learning systems that were had different goals than the goals we trained them on? Where this there's sort of this analogy to this idea of evolution of, you know, like, huh, it's kind of weird that humans don't care about like inclusive genetic fitness or something, despite the fact that we were selected for that. Mm-hmm. And could the same thing happen in ML? This was sort of the state of the discourse at the time. And I found this idea really fascinating. And so I put together a group of people and we sort of tried to think about it and work on it and see if we could write a sort of paper about this. And this ended up becoming the risk and learn optimization paper, which I think we'll probably talk about some of the ideas in that paper uh, here. Um, and so I published that paper with a, you know, a bunch of other people that, that I, I met at this research retreat. Um, and Paul Cristiano, who was at OpenAI at the time, uh, was really excited about this. And so he, uh, after we sort of published it, he, he invited me to apply to OpenAI to work with him doing some sort of theoretical alignment research there. And so I went to OpenAI after I graduated and sort of uh, I was there for a little bit doing some theoretical stuff with Paul. And then when that was done, uh, Miri offered me a full-time research position and I've been at Miri doing research there for the last two years. Fantastic. Um, well, thanks for that rundown. Before we get into inner alignment specifically, um, I do want to talk about just alignment a little bit more broadly. And I guess where I want to go with this is I imagine that some of our listeners or many of them might be familiar with it. But I also know that there's a good amount of people who are maybe not so sure about whether AI is an existential risk or unfamiliar with the alignment community, not too sure about its goals or the value of theoretical research. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind maybe taking a second just to try to give a little bit of like an argument or your perspective on why you think that AI safety as a whole, and particularly maybe some of the theoretical work that you all do over at Miri is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So it's definitely the case that like the reason I I do this work is because I believe it's valuable and important for the long-term future. You know, I said I got into it through effective altruism. You know, I think I really enjoy software engineering a lot. uh, And I I think I I don't enjoy research as much, but I really find that it's the way I can contribute most to the world because I'm like quite concerned about the risks from uh, AI. I think that, you know, really the way that I see the sort of real big existential problems with AI um, is a little bit different. I think that um, it's maybe more of a, and I think that in many ways you can think of risk and optimization in this way and it's sort of become this, this thing in the, in the sort of space that is like a more, more modern, more sort of ML focused way of thinking about the existential risks. Um, and it is really the risk and optimization style risks that are the ones that I'm concerned about. So uh, I can maybe give a brief overview of what that would look like, but you know, I think really, hopefully when we really delve into it, uh, we can, I can really go through, you know, what is the sort of risk there, but you know, very, very broadly, the risk is that if we train a system and, um, you know, I like, I like to give this example. So let's say we're training a system to solve mazes. You know, we want to train a model to be able to navigate a maze, um, and, and get to the end of the maze. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's say during training, we put a little green arrow at the end of the maze to sort of mark the end. Mm-hmm. And we ask the question, what happens when we deploy this model off distribution in a setting where the mazes are larger and the green arrow is no longer at the end? It's now, you know, like in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. What does the model do? This is a generalization question, right? Yeah. And so here are three different possible generalizations. So one possible generalization 
might be that the model just didn't learn a general purpose maze solving optimization algorithm. And so when it sees this big maze, it just flounders about. It just doesn't know how to solve it. It doesn't know how to do anything meaningful in big mazes. There's a second possibility, which is that it, uh, this first possibility where it knows how to solve the maze, I call this capability generalization. It learned a general purpose capability to solve mazes. Okay, there's a second possibility. Uh, sorry, it, well, and the case where I just say was, was a failure of capability generalization. It wasn't able to learn a general purpose maze solving capability. Mm -hmm. The second case is it does learn a general purpose maze solving capability, and it learns to use that capability for the right purpose. It learns to navigate these bigger mazes to get to the end. And so the way it generalizes from the smaller mazes is that it successfully navigates larger mazes and successfully navigates them to the end. But there's a third thing that can happen, which is that it learns a general purpose maze solving capability. It knows how to navigate these larger mazes, but it navigates them to get to the green arrow rather than get to the end, which is not what we intended. We tried to train it to go to the end, but because the green arrow on the end of the maze were sort of identical on the training distribution, uh, it learned one rather than the other. And, you know, I, I think we, uh, the, the, the thing that I call this is I call this capability generalization without objective generalization. So it's capabilities generalized. It learned a general purpose capability but it didn't learn the right objective. It's objective of go to the end of the maze didn't generalize properly off distribution. And so what's so concerning about this, right? Well, what's so concerning is that this is a situation where we trained a model that learned a very general, powerful optimization algorithm. It learned how to do an act very capably in the world. And yet it learned to use those capabilities for an objective that we never intended it to be using its capabilities for, nor ever even wrote down. We never even specified this objective. We never even asked it to, to go to the green arrow. The only thing we ever tried to get it to do was go to the end of the maze. And yet it learned to do the wrong thing, go to the green arrow instead, and, and to use this very powerful maze solving capability to do so. And so if you know, imagine replacing maze with the real world, you know, we're training models uh, in, in this sort of setup, we might be in a situation where we train models that are very powerful and able to take coherent actions in the world, and yet those actions might be directed towards goals that are entirely different than the ones we tried to train the model on, just because our training process is insufficient at actually ensuring that the model goes for the sort of right goal, the one that we, that we, the one that we intended. And so this is sort of, as I see, the core of where I think most of the existential risk from, from AI comes from. That's a really great argument, and I appreciate that. I do think that one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was reading through your inner alignment work was that it felt very easy to map onto even some of our current ML systems, the way that you think about this. And I guess to what you're saying, this also does kind of highlight some of the, I suppose, problems when we think about just the more and more complicated kind of black box algorithms, not knowing exactly what they're optimizing for, what they're learning about, what they're focusing on, can really be detrimental when we start asking them to do things off distribution because we have no idea what exactly they're going to do. And so I suppose that a lot of what's going on today with model monitoring and interpretability and research on a lot of those fronts, and we can get more into this as we discuss the interalignment paper, um, I think you point this out as really related to your research. And I think the fact that we're seeing it kind of open up more today is maybe indicative of how important it's going to be going into the future, especially when we start to see more and more advanced AI systems and possibly ones that have MESA optimizers. Um, I think all that being said, 
if we don't have anything else prior, I would love to get into bad paper itself. And I guess you've given us a really good example here. But I'm wondering if you can go through kind of the main highlights of your risks from learned optimization paper. You've already explained why you think it's important. So maybe we can get into um, some more specifics about it, things like what is a MESA optimizer that I just talked about, what is impact versus intent alignment. Um, and then maybe as we go on thinking about why would MESA optimizers be even likely? Why should we expect this to be a problem that might arise? Absolutely, yes. So I'll introduce the terminology MESA optimizer. People who are not familiar, so this is a concept that we introduced in, the, in, in this risk learned optimization paper. So the idea of a MESA optimizer is it's really not complicated. It comes from this concept of meta-optimization. So meta-optimization is a thing that you know, is very common in machine learning, where we you know, train an optimizer to optimize over optimizers. And this is a thing that we often do purposefully. You know, we might do black box optimization over the hyperparameters of a gradient descent process. And then that is an optimizer that's optimizing over parameters of another optimizer. Um, but there is a potentially concerning situation which is what happens when, you know, when we do just machine learning, we train a neural network, we are selecting over possible parameterizations of a, of a function. You know, machine learning fundamentally is we are searching over possible parameters in, in, in some parameter space to find some function which does something that we want us to do. And it is totally conceivable that we could find some set of parameters that itself implements an optimization algorithm. And if we found some set of parameters that itself implements an optimization algorithm, then we would sort of be doing meta-optimization, even though we you know, maybe didn't intend to do so. Because now, our gradient descent process is optimizing over parameters that are an optimizer. And so MESA is sort of the, it's Greek, it's just the opposite of meta. So meta is like one level above, one level optimization above, MESA is one level optimization below. It is, you know, we had an optimizer, and then we didn't think it was going to be doing meta-optimization, but, but it ended up doing it. And so the optimizer, the sort of MESA optimizer is the, you know, one meta level below the base optimizer. So that's really what a MACE optimizer is. Um, and so we talk about in the paper the sort of situations where how, how might it be concerning if you have a MACE optimizer? Uh, when might you get MACE optimizers? Um, you know, these are the sort of two big questions. So um, I can maybe start with the why might you get MACE optimizers? Um, I think that fundamentally, the sort of argument for why you would get MACE optimizers is just, it's that they're simple and they generalize well, right? So if we think about a situation like, um, let's say we want to train an algorithm to solve Go, right? You know, mm -hmm. one thing which we know works really well in Go uh, is search, you know, MCTS. Uh, mm -hmm. If you have to learn a heuristic to be able to understand what is the sort of, is this a good Go state in every possible situation, um, you just have to learn this huge, you know, set of heuristics. But if you have the ability to do look ahead, to you know, figure out, you know, in this particular situation that I'm currently in, what would be a good go move for me to take? Is this a, is this a good sort of situation? You can sort of rediscover what the heuristics are that are relevant in that particular situation by doing this sort of search, this look ahead. Mm -hmm. And so optimization search is just the sort of thing that is very good at generalizing. It's, it's really good at being able to help you figure out what are the things which you need to do in this specific situation. And so we think about something like AlphaGo, that's a situation where we explicitly gave the model access to search, you know, to MCTS, so that it would be better at being able to solve these sorts of problems. And that is one way in which you might get search. Um, but you could also imagine a situation where we could train search end-to-end, -end, uh, where if you're training an end-to-end, -end, you just have a network 
And there are parameterizations of that network that implement search algorithms. And you could just find a parameterization of the network that happens to implement a search algorithm. And you know, this is another valid way of trying to get search out of your sort of machine learning system. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is some question of whether you know we will want to move into a direction where we're hard coding the search or training it end to end. I think that that's you know an interesting question in and of itself. Um, but either way, we are in a situation where we have a model that is doing this sort of really powerful coherent optimization for some purpose, um, mm -hmm. and we you know may or may not like that purpose. Now, there's also sort of a, another way to think about the same thing, which I was alluding to earlier, which is sort of from the simplicity perspective. So we can think about search as a way of compressing heuristics. So we, you know, if we think about Go, there's a lot of different possible ways of thinking about, you know, like, oh, in this particular situation, I have to do, you know, like, you know, this is like an alive stone or a dead stone, or I mean, all these sort of various heuristics, which, which you need to pick up on to understand, like, what sorts of patterns on the Go board are good or bad. Mm -hmm. um, but search, trying to actually just do look ahead and figure out what which patterns actually survive and which do well and give me points, is a way of figuring out what heuristics to use in any individual situation. And so it's a way of compressing those heuristics into a simple algorithm which reproduces them. And so we, we actually know that neural networks are very heavily biased towards simple functions. So mm -hmm. this is coming from uh, the parameter function map. So the map between the parameterizations of neural networks and the function that those parameters actually encode for, the sort of functional behavior, that map is heavily biased towards simple functions. And there's a lot of research that is sort of that, that's indicating this. Um, and so we should expect that if we are in a situation where you know we're doing something like deep learning and we're we think search is a very simple algorithm, you know, we're gonna find these sorts of simple compressed policies because it's sort of biased towards simplicity. And so I think that's the sort of most basic argument. You know, and there are some other things that I can talk about that might push you in one direction or the other. So, you know, another thing might be um, if we're training models on human behavior, being able to model a human, like humans are optimizers. And so being able to model a human probably requires you to understand optimization enough that you might be able to reuse that same machinery yourself. Um, you know, we can also think about things like um, to the extent that the models have the ability to store state over multiple episodes is the sort of thing that seems likely to encourage optimization as well, um, which is often not the case with a lot of current algorithms where like, you know, they they just sort of, like with a transformer, it has like this fixed context window and it can't like mm -hmm. refer back to some information it was thinking about in its like previous activations. Mm -hmm. um, but you can imagine future systems that were able to do this and this enables you to do much more longer term planning. And so there are a lot of so, sorts of things that we can talk about that might push you in the direction of doing more or less optimization. That's um, interesting. Um, you know, one thing you actually mentioned there that I found pretty interesting was the idea of compressed policies and things like that. So it seems like in some ways, it, if we were to speak of maybe things like the Kolmogorov of complexity as a kind of measure, then just having a single algorithm that our model finds as an optimization, as you said, like MCTS or something like that for solving Go might be a little bit simpler than if we were to go ahead and write out and specify in the first place, okay, you're going to use MCTS search or something like that, and then kind of go ahead and specify further from there, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm going in the wrong direction with that, but um, I think that's a pretty interesting point to think about. Yeah, I absolutely think that like, you know, I think we should be expecting that at some point our model is going to be learning these powerful optimization algorithms and we need to figure out, you know, how to deal with that. And one way to deal with it is to be like, we're going to really con tightly control what sort of optimization it does. We're going to like, you know, hard code that optimization and understand what the objective is that it's optimizing for. Um, 
that's one way to maybe try to deal with this problem. Um, there is some concern in that situation. You know, maybe if you don't give it the right sort of optimization, it'll still just learn additional optimization itself. Because you know, if you're still just doing this very general search over possible parameterizations, you you might still be the case that additional optimization is going to be a thing that is good to find in that situation. That's going to give you better performance. So you might still find optimization even in a setting where you sort of explicitly gave it optimization as well. If it's just sort of more optimization is necessary. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things I'm curious about here, actually. And I think, so the first is, you know, this definitely seems like we've, of course, started to see, I guess, ideas that start to trend toward this. So if we look at like neural architecture search and AutoML, that's maybe not quite, you know, getting to some place where we have Mesa optimizers, but we are still doing a search over maybe I've restricted my search space to specific types of neural network architectures and things like that. And then we do some kind of optimization for what precisely that looks like. And that's not quite Mesa optimization. But one thing that this makes me think about is that these procedures have been found to be very, very computationally expensive, right? Almost to the point where they're prohibitive for almost anyone except basically a giant like Google to do, for example. So one thing I'm curious about is maybe just about how feasible this is. So even before we get into maybe theoretical reasons why we might expect Mesa optimizers to be likely, practically, do this feels like it might be the outcome of some incredibly expensive search procedures because to have an algorithm where we end up with a Mesa optimizer in the first place, it seems like the search space that our algorithm is going to have to look through is probably going to be pretty incredibly large if it includes things like optimizers. And maybe I have the wrong thing there, but it seems that way to me. And so that makes me wonder if we, when people try to develop algorithms of that sort, or if that happens, whether there might be a restriction on whether we're even able to do that by virtue of the fact that it might just be so computationally expensive. Yeah, I absolutely expect that the like, you know, the first places where we see these sorts of really powerful optimization algorithms being trained will be situations where, you know, whoever has access to the most computational resources and the most sort of ability to to run these sorts of really large training processes. Um, There is definitely this sort of interesting question of, you know, like, at what point do we end up with models that are large enough that they could learn something like optimization end to end? That's a really tricky question. You know, we know from a theoretical perspective that you know neural networks, arbitrarily large neural networks, are you know uh, universal function approximators, and so theoretically, eventually, we should expect they probably should be able to. You know, exactly at what point is really unclear. Um, you could make an argument that you know something like GPT three maybe is already a Mesa optimizer. It has you know the ability to do a lot of, you know, powerful uh, optimization on downstream tasks, you know, where you can give it, you can ask it questions that are like, you know, well, how would we, you know, do some other thing that wasn't exactly what it was trained on and has the ability to like, you know, solve a lot of these tasks. You know, maybe it's using something like search or optimization to do that. Uh, We Mm -hmm. don't really know. Um, One thing that we do definitely know is that there is, there has been work demonstrating the phenomenon of capability generalization without objective generalization that I was referring to previously. And, mm-hmm. and in many ways, the reasons that like I would expect something like Mesa optimization to be dangerous is because I expect that it might cause this sorts of capability generalization without objective generalization, where the optimization algorithm that you learn might be more powerful and sort of, uh, you know, might generalize better than the objective that you learn to use it on. 
uh, if the training process is insufficient to really give you a good objective, but it's good enough to give you a really powerful optimization process, then when you generalize, you'll end up sort of with this with this capability generalization and objective generalization. And this is something that we have seen. So there's a recent um, NERPS paper that was sort of going into very explicitly studying capability generalization and objective generalization based on the on our risk limit optimization paper, where what they went into was that they were able to discover that they trained a bunch of RL agents in these various different environments. Um, you know, an example is the sort of uh, a coin run agent on this sort of, uh, you know, trying to do the, play this game, get these coins. And uh, they found that the agent, you know, in a lot of circumstances would learn these really, it would learn to navigate the sort of uh, really good at all these various different coin run tasks. But if you, it would often learn things like, Rather than actually trying to get the coins, it would learn things like just go to the right of the screen, because the coins, you know, were always were always on the right, and so it it sort of they were able to demonstrate they they could learn these really powerful policies that really know how to navigate lots of different possible coin run environments, but they were they were navigating them for the wrong purpose. They were navigating them to try to get to the end or to the right rather than to try to get the the coins. Mm, that's a really interesting case, and you know. Um, I guess I kind of have two questions at this point. So the first one is maybe to a little bit earlier when we were thinking about the danger of Mesa optimizers. One thing I'm curious about is how we might even detect the presence of a Mesa optimizer, what that would look like. Because sometimes I expect, you know, I might not know exactly what my model is doing internally. There's a kind of epistemic barrier going on there. So I'm curious how we might detect something like that to this NeurIPS paper. And I think the example you gave earlier of the maze and the green arrow, I think those are both really great examples because we can see clearly how, um, I think what sticks out to me, I suppose, is that at training time, it seems like we're not carefully curating what exactly our algorithm might be getting. And so this might start getting into um, some of the adversarial training ideas. But I'm curious if, you know, a potential beginning to a fix of this capability generalization without objective generalization is just being really careful about how we curate the training examples that we give to our RL agent or whatever thing we might want to optimize. Yeah. So I definitely think that this is like the right line, the sort of right line to start thinking along. Um, but, but, but I do feel like, yeah, so, so I think there are some issues that you start running into when, when you start sort of going along this route. Um, and I think that, you know, so, so, so one thing that I, I would point out is that it's not always the case that you actually will learn, even, even if theoretically, you have enough information in the training data to distinguish between going to the green arrow and going to the end of the maze. It doesn't guarantee that you actually learn the right thing. And in many cases, you might still learn the wrong thing because the, there might be, you know, it might be, for example, like in the coin run case, maybe specifying the right of the screen is much easier than learning some complex policy to figure out where the coins are. And so even if there are situations where theoretically, you know, going to the coin rather than the end of the right of the screen would give you more, uh, you know, reward. It might still learn just to go to the right of the screen because going to the right of the screen is simpler. And, and we know neural networks are just biased towards simplicity. And so mm -hmm. if there are situations where it learns some simpler policy than, than, than the one we actually intended, some simpler objective, you know, if, in the case of a Mesa optimizer than, than we intended, um, you know, that could be a, a big problem, even in situations where theoretically there's enough data to distinguish between them. So I think that, you know, one really interesting example of this sort of thing is that there's sort of analogy here where we can think about, you know, uh, evolution. Because we as humans were produced by a sort of evolutionary process. 
that selected us to you know, maximize our inclusive genetic fitness, have as many children as possible, pass on our sort of DNA into future generations. Um, but that's not what we care about. You know, like when you ask humans the things that they want, they're like, you know, I want happiness and love and, you know, beauty and, you know, all this random shit that is like not what evolution was selected for. Mm-hmm. And so you can sort of ask the question, which is like, well, how did that happen? Um, that evolution sort of selected us for one thing and yet we ended up caring about a different thing. And I think that one way in which you can describe what happened there is that we learned simple proxies for what evolution wanted us to learn. You know, uh, if you think about something like uh, one example I like to give here is let's say you have a baby and this 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 baby is in this alternate reality where they actually learned to care about how much of their DNA is like in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And the baby like stubs their toe and they have to do some like complex calculation that is like, okay, you know, how does my toe being stopped impact my ability to pass on my genes? Like maybe this will make it harder for me to go hunting because I won't be able to like run as fast maybe, or, or maybe actually by stubbing my toe, I'm going to get a chance to stay at the tribe for longer and I can meet more mates or something, you know, like has to do this really complex calculation, but evolution knows the answer, right? Evolution has, has, you know, done a lot of, you know, trials of this and it knows that stubbing your toe is generally bad for your genetic fitness. And so it's like stubbing toe causes pain and pain is bad. Whenever you get pain, you should avoid it. And so, you know, you might think that theoretically in all possible environments, you know, avoiding pain isn't going to be as effective at getting your genes the next generation as like actually if you cared about getting your genes the next generation. But it's way easier to calculate. You know, you just have this like neuron that just like fires whenever you, your, your like toe gets hurt and you just like that gives you a negative signal. You're like, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, we can sort of think about, you know, what happened as, you know, we learned these much simpler, easier to specify, easier to calculate, easier to use proxies, like avoid pain, um, rather than the sort of, you know, more, much more complicated thing, like, you know, get as much DNA into the next generation as possible, even if theoretically getting your DNA into the next generation was sort of the thing we were being trained on. And so I think that this sort of suggests that there can be situations where you can learn something that is much simpler and much sort of faster than the thing that you really intended, even in the presence of enough data to distinguish between the two. That's really interesting. And I guess what that speaks to thinking to the analogy you made is that um, for the baby and for the RL agent, it's maybe better, as you said, given the bias towards simpler functions, towards simpler solutions, to learn these proxies that, as you said, are a lot more immediate, a lot easier than computing the whole what's going to happen to me over the next few states, over the next few generations, years of my life. Um, and while those may indeed correlate with what the final objective is, we can't make claims, especially in complicated enough systems, about the causal relationship between things like stubbing your toe and passing your genes on to the next generation. So sure, by proxy, it's like this might definitely be bad for me. But then also, we can make a causal claim that this is definitely going to stop me from passing some genes down to the next generation. And so in the same way, it's like, for the RL agents, whatever proxies they might be using to distinguish between things, that might not necessarily actually help them with trying to apply that knowledge towards optimizing what the original objective was then. Cool. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that there's sort of something going on here where um, it's, 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 it's not just also, and this is something that I, you know, 
that I also want to start pushing, but you know, this is sort of another whole topic in and of itself. But, but I also want to point out that there is another interesting thing that can happen here, which is, you know, I, I think once we really start pushing on it, we're like, you know, theoretically, if we just train on all the possible, you know, ways in which things could be different in different environments and really force it to, you know, like, if, if we train on enough possible examples, we can sort of overcome this natural bias towards simplicity and, you know, force it to learn a more complicated algorithm, so, you know, that, that fits the data. Um, but there, there is a, there's a concern that I think can, you know, things can start to get a little tricky in this case because fundamentally what grading descent is doing, what, what machine learning is doing is that it's just looking for some parameterization uh, of a function, some algorithm such that the algorithm looks like it does the right thing on the training distribution. But machine learning doesn't give us any guarantees about whether it's doing the right thing for the right reasons. And there's a lot of bad reasons that you might have for doing the right thing. And so, you know, an example of a bad reason that a model might have for doing the right thing, and, you know, we're only selecting in machine learning for doing the right thing. We don't care, it doesn't care about whether it's doing it for the right reasons. You know, there are some really bad reasons. So one possible really bad reason might be that Actually, the algorithm has just learned to, you know, uh, very, you know, one simple thing would be it has just learned to accumulate power. And so it's like, well, uh, probably I'll be able to do the most stuff in the world and get the most power if I do what this training process wants me to do. Mm -hmm. And that looks like it has really good performance on the training distribution. And it's really hard for you to tell if it's doing something like this because it looks like it's doing the right thing but it's clearly doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And the problem is that machine learning structurally only selects for models which do the right thing, but not for models which do the right thing for the right reasons. And so you can end up in situations like this where it's doing the right thing before a really bad reason that even if you had, you know, in some sense, even if you had arbitrarily large amounts of data, you, would, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell if it was just trying to, you know, uh, accumulate power or something, do something that um, would, would, was is something that like, you know, it, it's trying to trick you or something. Now, I think accumulate power example is a little bit weird because it's like, well, why would it ever want to do that? Um, we can talk about more realistic cases. Um, I think they're, they're, they exist. Um, but I think that it, the sort of more general point is just that it's interesting that, you know, there are a lot of really bad reasons that you could have for doing the right thing that machine learning is perfectly happy to find models with that, with those properties. And then, but then when, when they generalize, uh, things, things can get bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing this makes me think about, and I suspect this might not be totally on the alignment front, but I know that some folks have spoken about them in this regard, is I think there's been a lot of discussion about the impact of like recommendation algorithms and all of that recently. And I think that the way some activists like Tristan Harris put it, even if I find their characterization a bit bleak, is something like the recommendation algorithm is tasked with something like, let's increase our viewers' watch time or let's have our viewer engage with the site as much as possible, dependent on whatever objectives we want. And in, I think, Tristan and a couple of other people's view, the recommendation system solution to that is, okay, well, let's try to warp my users to make them as predictable as possible and then kind of turn them into these like machines that we can just send along whatever browsing paths we want or drawing them into producing more ad spend for us, which maybe is a little bit of a bleak way of putting it. And I think, you know, maybe ascribes a little bit too much cognition on the part of the algorithm, at least the ones that exist today. But it sounds to me at least a little bit similar to the story you're telling 
about these potential, I think this is what you're describing is basically a deceptive optimization process, right? Right. I, I absolutely think this is a fascinating example. Uh, so David Kruger, um, who's a, I believe, a, a associate professor at, at Cambridge now, he, he has a paper that sort of goes into this sort of uh, understanding, you know, what sort of ha can happen in these sorts of um, uh, recommender systems like you were describing. Um, and there's something really interesting here. So, so I think that one of the things which um, I think, you know, we oftentimes like to rely on when we do sort of machine learning setups is that we rely on this sort of assumption that, you know, when we reset the environment, we have like a new episode or a new sort of step. Things are actually reset. There hasn't been some like carryover. And that, the, that, the, that our sort of model isn't going to be trying to optimize for anything across episodes. But mm -hmm. what we find is that actually, uh, and, and what sort of David finds in this paper is that actually in a lot of cases for a lot of different algorithms that we sort of very commonly use, including uh, population-based training and even just vanilla Q-learning, they can learn to uh, do things where they actually learn a policy which is optimizing across episodes, which is trying to, you know, do something in one episode, which is like, you know, for example, change the human in some way that makes the task easier in the next episode. And they learn this policy because of the, the way in which doing that is correlated with having done it in the past. And so uh, because of this, the like population-based training, for example, will just be like, huh, the algorithm which generally does this thing overall on average performs better. And so we select for it. Um, and what's so scary about this is that this is exactly the sort of thing which can lead to, you know, I was, I was sort of alluding to earlier, maybe a more realistic example of, of this sort of deception. Because if you have a model and that model cares about some objective across, uh, you know, episode boundaries, you know, if, if we think about just the maze example, let's say it cares about going to the green arrow, not just once, but as many times as possible across episodes and across time. This model is much more dangerous. Uh, and in fact, what this model will do, if the sort of if it has an understanding of the training process, which we should probably expect if we're training, you know, it on a huge internet corpus at least of you know including Wikipedia page on machine learning, and it knows how all these things work, mm -hmm. it should have an understanding of the training process, and it, it, it and you know it, it should know if I don't go to the green arrow during training, if I go to it, then then gradient descent will will keep me the same. Because I gave, I did the correct behavior. I did the low loss behavior, and so I am a model which is sort of consistent with with the sort of, you know, having good behavior on the training distribution. But if I go to the green arrow, if I do the wrong behavior on the training distribution, then gradient descent, the training process, will modify me to be different so that I don't go to the green arrow in the future. But if if you have a model that has this sort of non myopic objective that sort of spans episode boundaries, where it wants to go to the green arrow as many times as possible, then you're in a situation where the optimal policy for this model is to go to the end of the maze during training so that it doesn't get modified by the sort of training process. And then during deployment, go to the green arrow as many times as it can. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really scary because now we're sort of incentivizing, you know, this sort of model is incentivized to trick us. It's incentivized to trick the training process. Mm -hmm. And so if we're in a situation, you know, and I think they sort of, what's what this sort of, problem in recommendation system is suggesting is that it's suggesting that this, you know, it's sort of a proto example of this sort of deception problem where it's like, it's showing that models will learn behavior, which where they can 
make some modification, do some change such that they're, they get better behavior. They get better performance way later down the line, you know, by like modifying the humans, the human becomes easier to predict in the future or by, you know, tricking the training process so that they don't get modified and they can do better things in the future. When you have models that are learning these sorts of behaviors, you know, uh, they're sort of, they, they can easily slide into each other. So, you know, maybe, you know, right now we're sort of seeing recommendation systems that, you know, have these really non-myopic policies where they modify humans to like make their task easier. And maybe in the future, we'll start to see systems where the way in which they sort of make their task easier in the future is by, uh, you know, tricking the training process. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is like a particularly sort of dangerous and interesting case. I think that I, I totally am in favor of like trying to understand how we can better prevent this sorts of non-myopia in, um, in recommendation systems. Cause I think it is likely to sort of directly translate into helping us solve similar problems that I think will occur later on as well. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for expounding on that. I think there's a couple of really interesting things in what you said there. And I guess we can dive into the whole myopia idea pretty soon, because I think that's another, um, important thing here. One thing I'm curious about though, is that, Uh, especially when we look to more advanced systems. And I can't say it seems like this happens with recommendation systems, but one thing that I feel like a lot of this deceptive alignment hinges on is, as you said, some kind of understanding of the training process, or at the very least, some ability to know what's going on would be helpful for something that could possibly be a deceptive optimizer. And so what that makes me wonder, though, is how close we are to having systems that might possibly be able to possess that understanding. So you said, for example, if we fed something like maybe a language model, the entire corpus of the Internet, and that corpus included the Wikipedia article on gradient descent, then maybe it's got an article in its trading data that tells it about that. But to what extent can we say, you know, that it really actually understands anything about that? Like the language models for today, you know, if we look at GPT-3, I know there's already quite a bit of dispute over whether it actually understands anything that it's being fed as training data. So I'm curious right. well, I think, what that so, looks like. Yeah, so one thing that is clear is that the understanding is getting better. And that these language models are clearly getting more more able to sort of answer really complex questions about you know all of these sorts of um, domains. One thing which I will say is that I think that the sort of most concrete thing which I can point to, which like current language models really don't seem to have, which does seem necessary, is an understanding not just of machine learning and of training process in general, but understanding of like themselves and what they are in the world, uh, and, and sort of the fact that they are themselves in a training process. Um, I don't think there's any reason that this is like fundamentally more difficult, more complicated, or harder to learn than, than anything else. It is, you know, it's something that, you know, especially if we're, if we're training models to like act in the, in the world and do things in the world and help us in particular ways, which is something that we, we have been moving to as we've been, you know, doing things like decision transformers and stuff where we're sort of taking, you know, language models and using them to help us do like RL tasks. Um, there are situations where, you know, we are, we will eventually sort of presumably want models to have a model of themselves and understand what they are in the world. Um, and that is, once you get to that point, then it has both an understanding of how training processes work, how grading descent works, how machine learning works, and also of the fact that it itself is in a training process of this form, then you're sort of, you know, you're starting to get to the point where it, it could act deceptive. Now, it does also have to have this thing I was talking about, about how it has to have this non-myopic objective. It has to care about things across time. If it just cares about its own individual, like, I want this output to be, to be really good, then, like, it's not going to exhibit this sort of deceptive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the concerning thing, you know, as I was saying previously, is that 
we see that a lot of the current training processes, like you know things like population-based training, directly incentivize models to have these sorts of uh, optimization across episodes and whatnot. And so that is a pretty concerning situation to be in, where you know if, if we're sort of continuing along that path, we could end up in a situation where we are um, using these uh, these sorts of these sorts of language model systems could eventually become quite dangerous. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. So there is one kind of other point that I want to think about a little bit before we get into potential ways to prevent deceptive alignment. And I think it was this. So in some of your posts, you've made a sort of counting argument here as to why we should expect MESA optimizers, why we should expect deceptive alignment to be likely, just by virtue of the fact that it seems like there are more solutions to a problem, more optimizers that would be deceptively aligned as opposed to, say, robustly aligned that are in line with that true outer objective. And so one thing I'm curious about here is in the regime where we're dealing with MESA optimizers, um, and this is maybe referencing another one of your posts on how inductive biases kind of stick around once we get to this point where we have achieved zero training error because we have a sufficiently complex neural network or machine learning algorithm. And then it's starting to be able to achieve this sort of double descent behavior. And at that point, it seems like the inductive bias kind of comes back and starts to matter again. I'm wondering if there's maybe something a little bit different that occurs there beyond just a simple counting argument for deceptively aligned optimizers, whereby the inductive bias actually plays a part in how likely we are to have a deceptively aligned optimizer. I can imagine it might make it even more likely than a simple counting argument might suggest, since I think that assumes you know, like a uniform prior over optimizers. But I can also see situations where we might have a good inductive bias that makes it less likely. And I think you called this out as something to think about when we are considering deceptively aligned versus robustly aligned MESA optimizers and how the inductive bias can make that um, a little bit dangerous. But I'm curious if you've thought a little bit about um, I suppose it's hard to say concretely right now, but what sorts of inductive biases might be good in terms of steering us away from those more troubling situations? Absolutely, yeah. I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think that there is, you know, really trying to understand what are the inductive biases that push you towards something like deception um, or push you away from it is a really tricky problem. And one, I think we really need a better understanding of the inductive biases underlying neural networks to get at. You know, I think one thing you were alluding to is the sort of, you know, uh, stuff I've written about thinking about uh, double descent um, and, you know, what does double descent tell us about how the inductive biases of neural networks work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it tells us a lot and it gives it certainly gives us some insight into the ways in which, you know, for example, very large overparameterized networks have this really strong simplicity bias. But I think that it's it's sort of clearly insufficient. We sort of really clearly don't understand what simplicity even exactly means in the context of neural networks. You know, we clearly, we, we, we know that there is some connection to things like Kalman graph complexity, that, you know, clearly things which are easier to specify are, are learned by neural networks more. Um, but we really don't know much more than that. We really don't understand the extent to which these different sorts of, um, uh, you know, inductive biases sort of create the incentives for different sorts of models. You know, wh why would you get one model over another model if they both have equivalent loss? We, we don't really know how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, and so this does, it makes it hard to sort of make sort of really concrete claims about like, you know, how, would you get deception? Would you get, you know, any sort of possible dangerous behavior that you're concerned about? 
you know, what we can definitely say is we can be like, look, you know, the deceptive story that I was, that I was telling, you know, is still a story where it has good training performance. And so at the very least, it won't be, you know, diselected, uh, selected against by the loss function. Mm-hmm. But we don't know whether the inductive biases will be such that it will be the one that we find with good performance rather than any other model, which also has good performance. Uh, and this is a really tricky question. So, you know, there are arguments we can make. We can be like, well, look, let's just imagine that it is kind of like simplicity and be like, how simple is deception? It's like, well, the sorts of modifications that gradient descent would need to make to cause a model to become deceptive don't seem that complicated. Like it has to cause it to have some belief that is like it has some objective where it cares about things across episodes, you know, across parameter updates. Um, and, you know, for example, go to the green arrow as many times as possible. So that's something that's required for, for mm-hmm. deception. Um, but there isn't much else. Like, you know, presumably if it's in a situation where it just already knows what the base objective is, because it has to understand the world if we want it to be able to take actions in the world. And so it probably already knows the training process and understands the, the training process. So the only barrier is to become deceptive is to actually believe that being deceptive will be useful to it. And as long as it believes that there's something it can gain from, you know, defecting against us at some point in, 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 you know, later on, then there is a reason for it to act deceptive. And so, you know, the only modification that is necessary for gradient descent to make to the model is to just change it to, uh, you know, you know, have some objective such that there's something to gain from acting deceptive. Mm, um, and we can compare this to, you know, like what are other ways in which gradient descent, you know, a model might be modified to have, you know, good performance on the base objective. You know, one possible way in which it might be modified to have good performance at the base objective is to just, um, you know, great descent, just like, you know, create some understanding inside the model of like explicitly everything that it needs to know about the base objective. Um, I think this sort of thing is just, is, is just pretty unlikely structurally though, because it has to, you know, all, there's a lot of information in the input data and we should expect that by default, it's going to reuse the information that exists in the input data. Like, you know, it's much more complicated to re-encode all of this data about, you know, we're trying to train a model to, you know, do good things. And it reads the Wikipedia page on ethics. You know, why would gradient descent, you know, it has both encode for the what's knowledge necessary to predict the Wikipedia page on ethics and then re-encode an understanding of actual ethics. You know, presumably it's going to reuse that information. Um, and so deception is one way of reusing it, of giving the model some simple objective and then and then having some, you know, having some modification to it such that it becomes deceptive um, in, in sort of service of that simple objective. Um, it's sort of one way of making use of the fact of going from a model which knows what the sort of objective is that we're training on to a model which actually cares about that objective. The problem is that the deceptive model cares about it for the wrong reasons. But of course, gradient descent doesn't care. Machine learning doesn't care about whether it cares about it for the wrong reasons. It just cares about whether it cares about it. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or whether it looks like it cares about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another way to think about this is there's sort of an example that is like, well, we can think about, you know, uh, an interesting thing is consider uh, a duck, okay? And, and a duck has a child. Uh, you know, a mother duck has a duckling. And the duckling needs to figure out uh, what their, who their mother is so that they can, you know, follow, follow their mother around and, and, you know, do all this stuff. So, so how did the duck learn to do this? Well, it learned to do it via this sort of imprinting behavior where it sort of looks for the first thing it sees. And it's like, that's my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm going to follow that around. And you can think of this sort of imprinting as an example of a way of, rather than sort of the the, the duck having explicitly learned, you know, what it means for a thing to be a mother. All it learned was at some point, you're going to, you're going to have to build models of the world. And at some point, your model of the world is going to include your mother somewhere. And we know that probably the first thing you see is going to be your mother. 
And so this is a way of reusing the model's knowledge about the world and turning it into uh, sort of a way in which the model actually starts optimizing for the thing we want it to optimize for. And so I, I sort of call this the corrigible case. This is the sort of case that, you know, if, if we actually learn this sort of a pointer to the correct behavior in the same way that Doc has sort of a pointer to his mother in its, in its sort of model of the world, it's sort of the first thing that it sees, you know, this would be pretty good. And so you can think about, I think, the sort of deception case and the sort of this cordial case as two different ways of going from uh, having a model of the world that includes what objective you're being trained on to actually caring about or looking like you care about that objective uh, during training. And the concern is that, you know, I think the deception might might actually be simpler than the cordial case, because in, in deception, you just have to have this objective that is long term, whereas in cordial, the building a pointer like that can be kind of hard. Because you have to, you know, make sure that the pointer is actually robust and is pointing to the right thing. You know, if we think about ducks, for example, you know, imprinting goes wrong a lot of the times, you know. And so if we have diverse enough training environments, we're really trying to force it to actually get the right thing in all the training examples. You know, imprinting might not be good enough. It might, you know, like, you know, imprint on the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And so deception, deception, though, is very robust during training. Because if a deceptive model, if a model that is like trying to, you know, do what the training process wants for the purpose of being selected for by that training process, if it finds that its notion of what the training process wants to do is different than what it actually wants to do, uh, than, than like, than, than what it thought, uh, it wanted it to do, it will just change. It'll realize that, oh, you know, actually my notion of what the training process wanted was wrong. It actually wants this thing instead. I should do this thing instead. And so it's very robust. If it learns new information, it'll just do the right thing automatically. Whereas the corrigible one won't. If it learns new information about like, you know, if it learns, oh, actually your real mother was this, 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 uh, you know, duck over here, not this one that was like this human that, that birthed you or whatever, uh, you know, artificially, um, then it doesn't care because it's already imprinted on, on, on the wrong, the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of arguments we can make like these where we can, you know, talk about why might it be the case that your model would sort of, you would learn one sort of behavior or another, another sort of behavior, one, you know, potentially dangerous behavior over, over, you know, uh, potentially safe behavior. But fundamentally, like I was saying at the beginning, you know, all of the arguments I just made are pretty suspect because we just don't understand what this simplicity really means in the context of neural networks. Uh, and mm -hmm. until we get that understanding, it's just super hard to predict which of these sorts of things is going to be simpler or more likely to be selected for by mm -hmm. our, our training processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think another thing that what you said really calls out too is the need, I guess this isn't the same thing as understanding the inductive biases, but even interpretability as far as understanding the reasons why our algorithms are making certain decisions. Like we've already gotten the beginning of model monitoring and interpretability. And of course, you know, for very basic models, you can obviously just look at the coefficients of like a linear regression and kind of see what's going on there. And then for convolutional neural networks, I know there's ideas like saliency maps, you know, what part of the image does this neural network find very important and then modify its gradient, for example. Example. But especially as we develop more and more powerful systems um, and even things like GPT-3, I can imagine this is why a group like Eleuther AI thinks that needs to be open source so more people can study it. You know, finding ways of attacking these more and more complicated models with interpretability tools to better understand what's going on inside that black box is going to be more and more vital, especially as we expect to be getting close to a world where Mason optimizers might start arising. I absolutely agree with that. I think the interpretability is like a really promising direction for trying to sort of, 
you know, I was sort of hammering home that like when we do machine learning, it selects for models which do the right thing on the training data, but not necessarily for models which do the right thing for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. But interpretability gives us the option to change that. It lets us potentially understand what the reason was that the model did something. And if we can know what the reason is, then we can start selecting for models that don't just do the right thing, but do the right thing for the right reasons. And I think that is critical for our ability to, you know, really train systems that, you know, are, are generally safe, that are able to like, you know, deploy them in lots of different settings and they consistently do the right thing because we know why they're doing the right thing. And we know that the reason they're doing the right thing is the right one. Uh, we know that they're not doing the right thing because they're trying to trick us, you know, because they just want to get deployed later. We're not, they're not doing the right thing because uh, they learned some proxy, like they learned to go the green arrow around the end of the maze. You know, we can, we can figure out that, you know, actually they're doing the right thing for the reason that we intended. And I think that fundamentally that sort of opening up the black box somehow has to be the way we solve this sort of problem. That if we, if we are just sort of confined to dealing with machine learning systems as black boxes, we just will not be able to figure out, you know, why a system is, is doing some behavior on the training distribution. Uh, and if we, if we can't understand why it's taking some behavior, then we just can't, then it's sort of not going to be possible, I think, for us to be able to ensure that its generalization behavior is going to be correct. Mm -hmm. because it could be doing the correct thing. It could look like it's doing the right thing. And grain descent is happy to select for a model, which looks like it's doing the right thing for a totally incorrect bad reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this is, I, I also agree that it's a very important aspect that generally says systems before the last thing I kind of want to get onto is some more solutions to this. So talking about relaxed adversarial training and perhaps a bit about myopia, but before we do get onto that, one thing I'm curious about, if you've thought about this, and I know there are some people in the AI alignment space that do, is just the fact that thinking about these interpretability concerns, adding additional monitoring, things like that, that is an increased burden on the folks who are deploying, who are using ML models. And so I think the question then becomes, okay, how do you incentivize people to actually make use of these tools in the ways that they're intended? One thing that I came across pretty recently was this really interesting study about folks who were, you know, given interpretability tools, and they thought that they kind of understood what their models were doing, but really they were just looking at these interpretability tools as a kind of checkbox thing, like, hey, I quote, understand how my model is working. Um, and it turned out that, you know, they really just had a bad understanding or no understanding at all. If anything, sometimes these interpretability tools gave them misconceptions about how things were working. And so as important as they are, I do also worry about the human side of the equation, even if we end up with great interpretability tools, how can we start ensuring, you know, they're being used in the right way and are achieving, you know, the results we want them to. I'm curious if you've thought about that side as well. Yeah, I absolutely believe that this is, you know, a, a really tricky, really tricky question is, is how do we actually sort of ensure that interpretability tools are telling us something meaningful? You know, I, you know, like, like you're mentioning, there's a lot of situations where they, they tell us things that, end up not being meaningful, you know, this paper, the sort of interpretability illusion is sort of going into these sorts of problems. And I think that, um, yeah, there's a lot of ways in which we can talk about trying to address this sort of thing. I think that, you know, one thing that I'm excited about is ways in which we can try to, um, you know, find models which are easier to interpret. I think that, you know, we don't want to just be sort of 
you know, I, I think a lot of times in, in sort of machine learning, we are in a situation where it's just like, we have, you know, these, we use the neural network architectures that we use because they give us good performance. Mm-hmm. But we don't really look at the other arguments for and against using some particular architecture. Um, and one thing I would be excited about is trying to understand, you know, what if we moved into a, a sort of situation where actually the reason we used particular architectures was because they were easier to understand and easier for us to interpret and, and didn't give us, you know, uh, make it so that we, we, we were really confused when we tried to apply interpretability tools to it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in this sort of domain. Um, and I think that's one way in which you can start trying to address these sorts of problems where it's like our interpretability tools really just give us totally incorrect answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that sounds like a really exciting direction to go. I think the thing that I always think about in this regard is you know, the kind of people incentives, right? So we know that there's that interpretability performance trade-off. And so I guess it's possible that more powerful neural network architectures, ones that perform better, could generally be less interpretable. Although it does sound like some recent research has started to fight against that. So I know there was a recent study of, I think it was ImageNet that found a lot of pretty striking, you know, mistakes in it and then found that when they trained uh, a bunch of neural network models on the actually fixed up image net that it seems like some of the simpler, easier to understand neural network architectures actually performed better on that fixed up uh, image net. And so I'm curious if research like that gets pushed forward enough that maybe there might be enough of an awareness that, you know, these super complicated architectures maybe actually aren't what we even should be going for in terms of performance either. So I would be very excited to see, you know, the day that that gets pushed forward and we see um, a world in which we are picking architectures not just for as close to 100% accuracy as possible, but also that interpretability aspect. Right. Well, one thing which I feel like I would want to, I want to emphasize here is that like, you know, I think we, a lot of times sort of machine learning researchers have this sort of you know, background assumption that, you know, the thing that's really going to matter is performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in the real world, this is just often not true. Like the things that a lot of people like, and, you know, big organizations and like a lot of the use cases where we want, you know, machine learning for oftentimes one of the really important things that, you know, that those sorts of people will ask for is I want to know why it's doing what it's doing. And, and like, you know, a lot of, for example, you know, like critical infrastructure types of situations where we sort of deploy models. If we're deploying, we don't just care about uh, performance, you know, like even just from an, you know, economic standpoint, you know, like what are the, what are people, what are the actors in the world going to ask for when you're like, I've built you an AI system, here you go. One of the things that I think a lot of them are going to ask for is why should I trust it? You know, like what, what is the reason for, to believe that this thing is going to do the right thing? And, and I think that moving in a direction where we sort of, where the sort of, the sort of machine learning community understands that like, you know, performance is not the end all be all. That actually, you know, when we go to even just like use these systems in the real world, being able to say, I know why the system does what it does. And therefore I know when it will fail and when it won't fail is really important. And a really just like practically relevant thing to have to be able to, you know, like, uh, want to use a system. And so I, I really do think that, you know, even just from perspective of just like practically, you know, what is going to be useful in the short term, not even just from a like, you know, existential risk perspective, it's really going to be important. I think it, it's, we sort of should be emphasizing more the sort of importance of being able to understand why our models are doing what they're doing. 
I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, I think it still is even a little bit of a paradigm shift from where we are currently, because if you look at a lot of the applications of ML today, you know, in medicine and hiring, for example, um, you know, I know one company that has been under a fair bit of scrutiny and controversy is HireVue, right? And they claim that their hiring algorithm is sort of able to scan your video and take in like thousands or tens of thousands of features into account. And that sounds like something that is notoriously uninterpretable. And in spite of the fact that I believe Illinois has put laws in place that are like, you should be more transparent about this. You know, job seekers aren't actually going to learn that much more about how the algorithm is working. And there's so much going on and, you know, how do you gain these algorithms? But still, they're so complicated that folks don't understand how they work. And HireVue's pitch is not so much on the interpretability side. So I do wonder, and I think it seems like there's definitely a bit of a trend towards folks asking for more reasons why these things are working. So my hope is that maybe that incentivizes the companies like HireVue to perhaps trend towards crafting algorithms that are more interpretable besides ones that, you know, just maybe meet up to some arbitrary standard of accuracy that doesn't actually matter. And especially in situations like hiring, even that level of accuracy doesn't actually make sense all the time, right? Because in the case of hiring, for example, you are measuring up to standards that have been crafted by humans who are making faulty decisions over history. And so in that respect, of course, you've got the algorithmic bias situations, all of those buzzwords people talk about. So I do think there's a little bit of a paradigm shift to be had there before we get to this point, but it does seem like there is a push in that direction, which is really positive to see. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely am excited about this. I think there's a lot more work to be done and a lot more that, you know, all of us can do to try to push for, you know, more transparency in, in, in machine learning systems. Um, but I definitely am excited about these sorts of developments. And I think that, you know, also just, you know, the more that we as a society ask for our machine learning systems to tell us what they're doing rather than just, you know, trust that, oh, they had it seems like it has good performance, so we'll just use it. You know, I think this also pushes machine learning in a good direction, which is towards really trying to figure out why the systems do what they do, understand you know why why they'll 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 be actually be correct in certain circumstances and incorrect in others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I do realize we're going a bit long, but if you're okay with a couple more minutes, um, I did before we sign off want to just have you go into a little bit, you know, your work. Um, on relaxed adversarial training. And, you know, I think also another thing that seems relevant to this problem of misaligned MESA optimizers is that, um, you know, multi-episodic sort of objective situation and whether things like maybe a kind of imposed myopia could be a helpful solution to the problem without detracting too much from, you know, the performance of an algorithm. So I guess first, if you could talk a little bit about relaxed adversarial training, that would be awesome. Yeah, so I was sort of alluding earlier to this idea of, well, what if we have um, ways of building models that are themselves sort of more transparent? Um, And I think that relaxed adversarial training is sort of trying to get at this idea, which is like, well, what if um, we sort of train our our models to sort of satisfy some, some sort of property about how they work internally? right? Train models, not just on what they do, but why they do it, you know, have some ability to look inside the model during training and say, you know, what is happening inside of this model? 
Uh, and is it, is it, is it doing the, the right thing for the right reasons? And, and, and if we like the reason, you know, train on those reasons being ones we like. And I think that this is sort of, this is sort of relaxed episode training is getting at. And there is a sort of, you know, quirk to relaxed episode training, which is that it also incorporates this sort of recursive part where we are using a sort of a, an overseer in this case that is not just like a human overseer, but also a sort of, uh, a human, uh, AI team overseer, where we are also training models to get better at understanding other models so that we can, you know, not just have all of the burden on being able to do this understanding fall on humans, but also, you know, be able to train, train models and have AI systems that help us better understand other AI systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is also sort of going to be critical because, you know, we're going to get to a point at some point where, you know, even if our interpretability tools are super good, we're still just not going to be able to, as humans, understand everything that's happening. But if we can, you know, sort of bootstrap up to a point where we, you know, are able to build models which we trust, and then use those models to understand other models, then we sort of have a shot being able to understand even very large, very complicated, very powerful systems. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let me think if I have any questions here. I think that is a really interesting process. Um, I suppose what I do wonder is concretely what that combination of human machine understanding of other algorithms might look like. So I don't know if we have any good examples today, but to how you tie this back to the interpretability idea, the fact that humans might not understand everything that's going on, what would it look like perhaps for an algorithm to be able to understand another algorithm, if that makes sense as a question? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a really tricky question, right? So there's, I think there's a lot of, you know, low-hanging fruit and progress being made on how do we give a, how do we make a model understandable to another model? You know, I think there has been a lot of recent work trying to do things like, how do we, you know, take a language model and let it also understand images or also understand music or, you know, other domains. One domain that I think is really exciting is neural networks understanding neural network weights and what neural networks do uh, and sort of, you know, potentially in the same way that, you know, we understand, you know, that we, that we sort of have models to understand language and sort of images. Now, this is a lot easier said than done. There's a lot of sort of technical difficulties that arise when you try to understand how would a model be able to make sense of, you know, the weights of another model. But, you know, it's something where I, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's also a lot of looking fruit. Like there's just not a lot of work being, being done on how do we, do these sorts of translation tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I, I, I'm excited that there sort of is, is potential progress to be made there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, given that it is low-hanging fruit, uh, do you know anyone at all who is starting to do work in that area or something that, you know, if a listener is interested, they might be able to look at to learn more? Yeah, so there are some... I've been in some early talks with some organizations that are that are sort of looking for possible, you know, new research directions. Um, and so there might be some work happening along these domains at sort of some various new research organizations. Um, but I don't know. I don't have anything concrete to talk about right now. Sure, sure. Cool. So I think just the very last thing I wanted to hit before we sign off on this is I think that other problem of myopia. So we've talked about how 
if we have these Mesa optimizers that have their own multi-episode objectives, whether they're recommendation systems or maze navigators or other types of algorithms, there's ways in which they might be incentivized to make these short-term sacrifices to look as though they're doing well in training distribution. And then they can, as you said, defect when they get out of distribution. So the kind of question I have here is whether a sort of imposed myopia is any is a possible solution to that problem. Maybe not a full solution, but a start at beginning to restrict the view forward of these agents in a way so as to stop that incentivization. Yeah. So I think there's a really promising direction. And it's one that I think a lot about, which is, you know, it's sort of the focus, I guess, of a lot of the research I'm doing right now, which is really on this, this question of how do we ensure that our models really only care about you know, the one task that they've been given, you know, if, you know, we're training, you know, a language model, how do we ensure that it really only cares about, you know, predicting the next token and is not trying to, you know, optimize for, 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 for something else, you know, beautiful sentences or something, you know, how do we, if we have a, a, a um, you know, a, a model where we're trying to train it to, you know, just uh, do, you know, if we think about like recommender systems, we just wanted to recommend the video that is best for you right now, not the video that would change you in some way such that it'll be easier to recommend in the future. What might it look like to have a system that is sort of doing something like that? And a lot of the sort of way in which I've been thinking about this is, you know, we have to understand what, what would be the reasons that, that, what would be the sort of internal structure that a model could have that would cause it to do this in the right way? And I think this is really important because I think we need to understand what is the internal algorithm which we should be shooting for in terms of what we want our models to eventually be implanting? Because once we know what sort of algorithm we want them to be implanting, then we can talk about how to incentivize it to produce that specific algorithm. You know, and I think we really need to be focusing on the algorithm, not the behavior, because we need to be understanding not just we want this particular behavior, but we want it to be doing this particular behavior for this particular reason, because it's implementing this particular algorithm. And so one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is how do we find a sort of type of decision-making algorithm such that it does, you know, it, it takes these sorts of, always does the sort of myopic action. Um, and I've, I've been recently doing some work on this in the sort of context of decision theory. And so uh, I recently published uh, some work with uh, Adam Shimi trying to sort of go into what would a decision theory look like that is sort of myopic in this way. Interesting. Cool. I think that's a great start just to start thinking about these issues. Um, I don't want to keep you around for too much longer. So, you know, just as a final thing for readers or sorry, for listeners who might be interested in learning a little bit more about your work, um, you know, reading about myopia, about inner alignment, where can they find you? Absolutely. So I publish most of my work on the alignment form. So this is you should you should be able to just Google alignment form. Um, uh, you can really just Google Lime Form in my name and you'll find, you know, my specific work. I, I publish the majority of the work that I do uh, uh, sort of publicly on the Lime Form, uh, where it is, where it's sort of accessible. I think Lime Form is just in general a really great resource for getting more into and understanding what's sort of happening in the, the world of AI safety, because there's a lot of various different work from different people who work in AI safety that gets sort of published there. Um, and so that's sort of a great, great spot to sort of learn more about what's happening in AI safety. Uh, as well, both my work and also the work of, you know, lots of other people in the field. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for all of your time, Evan. 
Uh, I do hope, you know, the listeners here will go ahead and look a little bit more into your work. I personally find it really fascinating, so I hope others will as well. Um, And with that, I think we'll go ahead and sign off.